Hello, and welcome back to the Hearsay Podcast, a joint project between Pro Bono Students Canada, University of Calgary Chapter, and CJSW 90.9 FM. This is a podcast where University of Calgary law students discuss a variety of legal topics with a plethora of professionals in the field. We'd like to emphasize that the information you hear today is legal information and not legal advice, as we are law students and not lawyers. This podcast is purely for informational purposes. If you do require legal advice, please consult a lawyer, as there is no substitute for a professional. My name is Claire, and today we'll be speaking about feminist legal theory with Professor Jennifer Koshan. You're listening to CJSW 90.9 FM, broadcasting out of Calgary, Alberta, at the University of Calgary Campus Radio Station, located on Treaty 7 land. I would like to take this opportunity to acknowledge the traditional territories of the people of the Treaty 7 region in southern Alberta, which includes the Blackfoot Confederacy, comprising the Siksika, the Pigani, the Gaina First Nations, the Sutina First Nation, and the Stony Nakoda, including Chiniki, Bearspaw, Wesley First Nations. The city of Calgary is also home to Métis Nation of Alberta, Region 3. Hello and welcome back to the Hearsay Podcast. My name is Claire and today we are joined by Professor Jennifer Koshan. Welcome so welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Claire. I'm going to start by having you introduce yourself to our listeners, please. So I am a professor in the Faculty of Law here at the University of Calgary. I have been at the university for just over 20 years and I teach in the areas of constitutional law, human rights and feminist legal theory. Wonderful. So you mentioned your research is in legal theory. Can you define exactly what theory is and more specifically what legal theory is? Sure. So I think at its simplest, I like to think about theory as an explanation. So a theory provides you with an explanation for something. So if we're talking about legal theory, a legal theory is an explanation about what law is, how the legal system works, and sometimes how it should work. So what are some misconceptions about legal theory that you've heard and that you could help us clear up? Well, I think one misconception is that you can have law without theory. And I think most legal theorists would actually dispute that because even if we think of law as a system of neutral rules that apply to everyone, um, that in itself is a particular theory about law. And it can be contrasted with other perspectives or theories on law, which would say that we need to look beyond what the law is and what the law should be. So even taking our current legal system as a given is in itself a particular theoretical formulation of law. So that's the first misconception. I would say a second misconception is that legal theory is hard. And I don't think it has to be hard. I think as long as you go back to the basics and think, again, about legal theory just providing an explanation for what law is or perhaps what law should be or how, how we evaluate what a good law is, um, you can keep it pretty simple. Um, and then there's also, I would say, a third misconception, which is that legal theory is boring. And especially if we think about... Um, what the law should be or how we should evaluate what a good law is. There's so many different possible answers to that question that I think really legal theory is anything but boring. 
So I am definitely in the camp where I feel like when I hear the words legal theory, that it seems like something very hard and something that, no offense, is a little bit boring. Um, (laughs) But so tell us why legal theory is important and how does it influence our understanding and approach to understanding the law? Okay. So I think legal theory is important because whatever theoretical framework we use for understanding law is going to influence the role that we think law has in society and the role that we think legal actors should have in society. So to give you an example, um, I would say the dominant legal theory is legal positivism. And legal positivism is a form of legal theory that focuses on what law is. Um, It believes that we shouldn't trouble ourselves with questions of, of what the law should be or ought to be, that politicians do that job perfectly well. um, But the role of judges, for example, is simply to apply the law as it is without thinking about what the law should be. Natural law theorists, on the other hand, are very much concerned with what the law should be. And so they focus on normative questions. So what, what are the criteria that we should use to evaluate if a law is a good law? And so there's that big debate between legal positivists and natural law theorists about focusing on what law is versus focusing on what law should be. And even that basic question, I think, has a lot to say about how we understand the legal system and the role that law plays in society and how we think about the role of judges, for example, because if judges are just there to read the law, um, apply the law as it is, um, it's a fairly minimalistic role of the or or view of the role of judges in society, whereas if we think that judges do have a role to play in determining the basic values that underlie society and that should inform their interpretation to the law, that can look quite a bit different than simply applying the black letter law on the books. Mm. So like we mentioned, Canada is a common law system, meaning we rely on precedent for legal decisions and place great importance on consistency and predictability of law. So how does legal theory push up against this fundamental aspect of Canadian law? Yeah, so again, I I would say here that that the common law system is a particular form of legal theory, of legal positivism. And the point of legal positivism, um, again, is to focus on what the law is, to, to try to create certainty and predictability. But it's interesting because in a way, to me, that's a value in and of itself. It's it's. Um, it's a good of the Canadian legal system to say that we think the qualities that it should have are that people will know what the law is, people will know whether their actions are are caught by the law, and that we can have some predictability about what will happen if we break the law, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, again, is legal positivism. And um, it gets a bit more complicated now that we have the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms in effect, because the Charter is part of our legal system. It's actually the supreme law of Canada. And what that means is that all other laws have to comply with the charter. And the charter itself incorporates values that people who come from a more natural law perspective have traditionally advocated for. So the charter protects equality, for example. It protects fundamental freedoms like expression and religion and association. Um, It protects life, liberty, and security of the person. So all of these are seen as being 
not just moral values that are important to Canadian society, but also now part of Canadian law. And so even within legal positivism now, we have a codification of some of these values in Canadian law through the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms, which means that we always have to evaluate law through the lens of those values that the Charter protects. And that might give rise to some um, issues when it comes to predictability and certainty and so on, because when you're when you're applying those kinds of values in the law, it may not always be clear what the outcome is going to be. Like, let's say you have um, an example of hate speech. Um, we have freedom of expression on one hand, so that's an important value underlying our charter. But then we also have equality and freedom from discrimination on the other hand, and hate speech is usually targeted at groups who have experienced experienced historical disadvantage. And so sometimes judges are called upon to have to balance these competing values, and it may not be very certain or, or predictable what the outcome of those sorts of disputes are. But now that we have incorporated those underlying values as part of Canadian law, to me it's an interesting example of how even legal positivism as a legal theory, so the idea that we're just, or, or judges are just applying the law the way it is, does incorporate certain values that, that judges have to take into account. So you've mentioned a few different types of legal theory, and especially ones that might not work together, such as your hate speech example. Mm -hmm. So what happens when, or can you give us more examples about the different types of theory and how they might clash and what we can do about that? Sure. So, um, you know, when it comes to something like the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms, protecting different values that may sometimes come into conflict, we do have a specific mechanism in the Charter itself that helps us to resolve those sorts of conflicts. So we have what's known as Section 1 of the Charter. It allows governments to place reasonable limits on people's rights and freedoms if it's doing so um, in a way that's for the greater good. And so um, sometimes the law itself, even the positive law, will uh, provide answers to, to those kinds of questions, or at least give judges the tools to be able to balance those kinds of competing interests. Um, but other times, I think um, different values may come into conflict. And so another example of uh, a legal theory that takes values into account is law and economics theory. So law and economics focuses on um, the types of incentives that drive human behavior. Um, crudely speaking, it does a bit of a cost-benefit analysis to determine if um, a law has more benefits than, than costs in society. And that's a very different way of looking at law um, than, say, a law that's based on moral values that, that focus on um, disadvantaged groups in society and, and changing the law in order to protect disadvantaged groups in society, because um, protecting those groups may actually um, cost the government some money to put into place benefit schemes or whatever, um, whatever the case may be. And so those types of conflicts, I think, are, are harder to resolve because they do really go to fundamental values in society. Do we think, you know, do we think it's appropriate for government um, to be taking positive action to alleviate disadvantage in society? Or do we think if that's going to cost too much 
then that's just the price we pay of, of living in society. I have my own views on that. My, my own tendencies are to think that we, um, we should be protecting historically disadvantaged groups and that governments do need to take positive steps to protect those groups. But that is based on a particular theory of law, which is mm -hmm. that one of the most important values we need to focus on in, in Canadian law is inequality. And others will disagree with that and say, we should be focused on other things like um, a cost-benefit analysis or more room for people's freedoms to operate as widely as possible without putting constraints on, on people's freedom to act and so on. And so I guess the other way that we sometimes resolve these types of conflicts is through the types of governments we elect. Um, so even legal positivists who believe that for example, courts and judges should just focus on what the law is, they would still acknowledge that it is the political role to make policy choices about those sorts of value judgments. And if people disagree with the approach a government is taking, then the appropriate recourse is to vote them out next time you mm -hmm. have a chance to, um, to have a voice in an election, rather than having judges take over the role of being lawmakers. Right. So you focus, as you mentioned, on feminist legal theory, and you teach a course at the University of Calgary Faculty of Law on the topic. So what kind of topics does your course cover, and what do you intend for your students to learn? Yeah, so feminist legal theory is um, it's one of my favorite courses to teach because it is, it is so diverse. And, and people might think, you know, it's it's a narrow focus on the law. But to me, one of the things that's most interesting about feminist legal theory is that it has so many different strands that allow for a lot of debate and um, disagreement within the realm of feminist legal theory. So generally speaking, feminist theory focuses on uh, a particular disadvantaged group in society, women, and it challenges the claim that law is neutral. So Legal positivists, again, often make the claim that, you know, we should focus on what law is as law as as long as the law is well known and is predictable and certain and so on. That's as much as we can ask of law, whereas a theory like feminist legal theory, similar to critical race theory, is to say law is never neutral. Um, and to claim that the law is neutral is really to um, maintain certain structures of power in society. And so one of the key methodologies that's used in feminist legal theory is by asking the so-called woman question. And the idea behind that method is to say, okay, we have this law. This law appears to be neutral on its face, but does it have a disadvantaging impact on a particular group in society, i.e. women, or does it perhaps leave women out altogether? So to give you an example of that, in first-year constitutional law, we look at a case called Fraser that involves the RCMP pension plan. And the RCMP allowed full pension benefits to its full-time workers, but part-time workers didn't get full pension benefits. Um, and then a third group of workers, work workers who were on leave without pay, um, were able to buy back their pension rights as soon as they came back to the workplace full time. So there's nothing on the face of the law that says anything about women. Mm -hmm. But by asking the woman question, what we do is discover that who is it that's working part time as RCMP members? It's predominantly women. Why is that? 
all sorts of reasons, but it has to do with things like um, traditional constructions of caregiving in society, which tend to to be roles that fall on women, um, and 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 other factors like that. So if we if we look behind what appears to be a neutral law, we will learn that it actually has an adverse impact on women. And in the Fraser case, a majority of the Supreme Court of Canada found that the law was discriminatory because it wasn't neutral. It did have this this adverse impact. So feminist theory helps us see what the impact of a law that is seemingly neutral might be on a particular group. You are listening to The Hearsay Podcast on CJSW 90.9 FM. So you mentioned that there's different strands of feminist legal theory. Can you tell us more about the different strands and how they work together and where they came from? Yeah. So that's another really interesting aspect of feminist theory, I think, is that um, not all feminists will agree on the best outcome of a policy dispute. So, for example, uh, liberal feminists are probably the most traditional or classic form of feminist legal theory, also very closely connected to liberal political thought. Um, That would be a form of feminist theory which would say women should have the same rights as men. And so if we think about women's ability to run for political office, for example, or to be able to hold particular um, positions of employment and so on, the idea there is let's just treat women the same as men. But then there's other strands of feminist theory that say, um, and this would be an example of cultural feminism, women are very different from men, and we can't treat women the same as men because to do so would be to deny things like women's caregiving roles in society, the fact that it is mostly women who become pregnant and have responsibilities associated with with pregnancy and childbirth and child rearing. And so um, they would say, we have to do the exact opposite, not treat women the same as men, but think about women's differences from men and how they should be treated accordingly. Then there's also a number of strands of feminist theory that look at how different groups of women may experience different inequalities in society. So I think there have been some critiques of feminist theory over the years that have been very fair in that it was originally a theory that was developed by largely privileged women who really just wanted access to the same social institutions as men had. Um, But then there were developments in the area of of feminist theory made by critical race feminists, critical disability feminists, queer feminists, people writing from different perspectives, showing how the law impacted different groups of women differently. And that led to a very important recognition that we need to pay attention to those intersecting inequalities as well. So, I mean, all of that sounds kind of like an evolution of feminism over time, which I think it's fair to say there has been, but there are still some real disagreements within feminist theory on particular issues. And to take one example there, um, I'm going to talk about sex work. Even what we call sex work, or if we call it prostitution, there's very different feminist theories that have ideas about, about that particular question. Um, and feminists can really differ too on an issue like sex work when it comes to what the law should do, whether the law um, should regulate sex work or should stay away from the regulation of sex work. Um, should we have criminal laws governing sex work or should sex work be legalized the same way that other 
forms of employment are and simply be regulated on the basis of the way other other types of employment are regulated. A lot of differences of opinion within the category of sex work have to do with the extent to which women are seen as being victims or being seen more as autonomous agents who have the ability to make their own decisions about um, the type of work they engage in. Other feminists, though radical feminists, for example, would say it's simply not possible for, for women to make that type of choice when they live in a society that is so fundamentally unequal. Um, yet another group of feminists would say we can't talk about sex work without thinking about the actual um, people who are doing that work, which tends to be Indigenous women, trans women, and we need to think about how those intersecting inequalities might affect what we think about what the proper regulation of this social issue is. So I think for me, feminist legal theory is a good example of how um, even if you think at a general level, people are all concerned about the same thing, that is the interests of women in the context of the law, people might still have very different ideas about what that looks like on the ground when you think about uh, the different values that are informing the legal responses to this social question. Mm, that's amazing. So as you are um, studying this um, feminist legal theory and involved in teaching it and research, what does research actually look like for theory, feminist legal theory? And is there any research that you're currently working on? Yeah, so let me first talk about my course because I'm always excited to, to have um, students in my course. So I'll tell you what I do there. Uh, we start off by examining the different strands of feminist legal theory um, that I've been talking about. Uh, and then what I encourage the students to do is to write their research papers in a way that is practical. Because I think the other misconception about, about legal theory is that it's not practical. It's very abstract. It's kind of up in the air. But for me, um, if you are representing a client and you want a judge to make a decision that is in the best interest of your client, theory is the thing that is going to help you get there. So you have to have an underlying theory that helps the, jo the, the judge apply the law in a way that is of benefit to your client, unless you're just asking the judge to you know, apply the law as, mm -hmm. it, as it is on the face of the statute. But if you're trying to get the judge to do something that is, for example, to take into account the disadvantage that your client has experienced, you have to have a way of trying to convince the judge of that. And so what I get my students to do for their assignment is either to write a factum, um, write a law reform submission, so make a submission to government about why the law should change in a particular area, um, or to write a feminist judgment. And that's a big research project that I've been involved in over the years with a group that um, we kind of cheekily call ourselves the Women's Court of Canada. And um, it was, it, the group started in the mid-2000s um, there was a group of us who had been at an equality rights conference. We were all involved with a group called LEAF, the Women's Legal Education and Action Fund. I think it's fair to say that we were feeling kind of despondent about the potential of law to actually achieve social change. And so uh, at a dinner after this conference, somebody blurted out at the dinner table, well, we should just rewrite the decisions that we don't like. And the idea caught on. And everyone went around the table and mentioned which judgment they would rewrite if they had a chance to. And we ended up 
producing two different publications of rewritten judgments of the Supreme Court of Canada from a feminist perspective. And it was it was really hard work, I have to say, to put yourself in the shoes of a judge, to think about the arguments on both sides, and then to come up with an a decision that was feminist, but that was still one that was within the boundaries of the law, so that people would see that it was a reasonable judgment that could be arrived at at on the circumstances of the case. And interestingly enough, the idea caught on worldwide. And so there are now feminist judgment writing projects in the US, England, Australia, India, Africa, like all over the world. Um, And so it's been a really exciting project to be part of. And I encourage my students to write feminist judgments um, as, as part of my course as well. Sometimes I think maybe I should teach the entire feminist legal theory course as a course about feminist judgments. And maybe that's a possibility for next year. I'm not sure. But um, fundamentally, I think feminist theory is only as good as your ability to use it in practice. And so I really want students to come out of the course with an idea of how they can use these ideas to actually come up with arguments that are of benefit to their clients. What a fascinating and unique approach to law and something that does have very real and very applicable outcomes. That's amazing. So tell us why it's important for the average Canadian, particularly folks who identify as male, to learn about and understand feminist legal theory. So I guess for me, a starting point is that we still have not achieved equality in Canadian society, that women haven't achieved equality in Canadian society. So we still, for example, have uh, pay inequity. Um, Women only earn something like 84, 85 cents on the dollar for every dollar that men earn. We also have um, over-incarceration of Indigenous women um, and racialized women. We have um, things like harassment and discrimination within the legal profession. Um, So for me, as long as we continue to have a society in which these inequalities exist, there will be a place for feminist legal theory. And I think even people who haven't experienced the sort of disadvantage that feminist theory is trying to, um, to change the law to deal with can be important allies in this work, and especially in the legal profession. I know not all listeners of this podcast will be in the legal profession or thinking about going into the legal profession, but um, there is still, unfortunately, discrimination and harassment within the legal profession itself. And and so, um, you know, we, we've done a good job of achieving uh, gender parity at law school. We We admit equal numbers of women and men. Uh, We also look at admissions now in terms of gender diversity. Um, We have a Black law students admission program and an Indigenous law students admission program. So I think we're doing a good job at that gatekeeping stage. But unfortunately, again, once people get out into the profession, um, there still is some discrimination and harassment. And so given that students develop relationships in law school, um, even, even if you're a person who isn't experiencing these sorts of issues, I think, again, you have an important role to play as as an ally. Um, and even if you're a man, but you may have experienced other types of disadvantage, you can make similar arguments to the ones that feminist theory makes from, for example, a critical race theory perspective, a critical disability pers- perspective, uh, from the perspective of queer theory, and so on. So 
Um, I do hope that everyone will see feminist legal theory and the other related theories that um, that are akin to it as being of relevance to them, if not for their own personal circumstances, at least to the circumstances of their of their colleagues and peers. Yes. So final question for you to wrap this up. Where do you see uh, legal feminist theory going in, say, the next 10 years? And where would you like to see it go? Oh, that's such a big question. Um, well, let me give you, give, give you another example of, of, I think, a concrete fact pattern that shows how feminist theory has evolved over time. So right now in the United States, there's a lot of concern about abortion rights, for example, because of a recent decision of the, of the U.S. Supreme Court overturning Roe and Wade. So there's a lot of concern about access to abortion. Um, and that is an incredibly important issue in society. But again, I think we can use legal theory to help us think about the issue more broadly. So if we think about the experiences of Black and Indigenous feminists, for example, they remind us that women in their communities are also subject to forced sterilization. So um, that is almost the exact opposite of, of a situation of seeking access to an abortion. It's being forced to terminate one's pregnancy in circumstances where one wants to continue with their pregnancy. Right. We also know that there are um, issues of discrimination that Indigenous and racialized women face when they seek access to health care. And reproductive health care is an important form of health care, so we need to think about discrimination and harassment in that context too. So for me, this is a really important example of how what's happening on the ground can actually change the way we think about the theory itself. So traditionally, feminist theory, when it came to abortion rights, focused on the notion of choice. You know, women have the right to choose. It was mostly focused on the notion of abortion rights. That is still an incredibly important area, and especially for people who don't have easy access to abortion services. But we also have to broaden the concept of, of reproductive rights to think more about reproductive justice mm -hmm. um, and to include issues like for sterilization, like discrimination and harassment in the context of trying to obtain medical services. Um, so for me, the way that feminist theory needs to keep evolving over time is to pay attention at the level of theory and, and to think about the underlying values that we want law to reflect, but also to listen to the voices on the ground that remind us that these values aren't just abstract ones, but they actually have real implications for people's lives. And we need to sometimes change the way we approach theory in order to pay adequate attention to those perspectives of, of people who are living with law on a day-to-day -day basis on the ground. So my own hope is that we can continue to look at a range of different voices, uh, work in coalition across different groups, um, and work together to try to achieve what I think the most important value is for Canadian law, which is equality. And I know not everyone will agree that, that that's the most important value, but that is my theory, and I am sticking to it. Fantastic. I couldn't agree more. Well, Professor thank Koshan, thank you so much for this incredible and enlightening discussion. 
I know I took a lot away from it and I'm sure our listeners will too. So thank you so much again for coming on the podcast. Thank you for having me. You are listening to the Hearsay Podcast. We are proud to present you with legal information, but please remember that this is not legal advice. If you do require legal advice, please consult a lawyer. The Hearsay Podcast is a joint project between CJSW 90.9 FM and Pro Bono Students Canada University of Calgary chapter. If you'd like to hear more podcasts like this, the Hearsay Podcast can be found on Google Podcasts, Apple Music, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.